Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, the book of Acts, chapters 8 and 9. In many ways, Acts chapter 8 is a significant pivot point. Now up to now, all the activity concerning the knowledge and the spreading of the good news of the gospel has taken place in the city of Jerusalem and has been strictly among Jews. And the focus of events has revolved around the works of the twelve disciples. But the sudden and horrific and unjust stoning to death of the believer Stephen that was given full legal sanction by the Sanhedrin as overseen by the high priest Caiaphas. This marked the beginning of an open persecution against the believing community of Jews in Jerusalem. Now if we step back and consider what's happening here, it's helpful to realize that this persecution, please pay attention to this, this persecution was upon one particular faction of Judaism. The Jewish disciples of Messiah Yeshua. And it was by other factions of Judaism that didn't agree with the believers factions Halakha. We talked about that term last week. That is, some of the traditions and the doctrines of the believers were in disagreement with some, but not all of the doctrines and traditions of the other sects of Judaism. In fact, the main point of disagreement was over the identity of the Messiah and, to a lesser degree, the Messiah's nature. We're really not made aware of, of any other serious doctrinal disagreements, at least up to, not to now, in the book of Acts. You know, labels are very tricky things that on the one hand can be useful, on the other, dangerous. When we attach a label to a group or to a person, to a concept, or or even to a doctrine, it is done with the direct purpose of creating a kind of communication shorthand, or perhaps a code word of sorts. A label is designed to paint a quick, sometimes subconscious mental image so that the conversation doesn't get bogged down in details. Labels often elicit knee-jerk emotional responses. Used enough, labels become stereotypes that are, are near to impossible to alter or to correct later. Now because most Bibles will at this point in the New Testament label the Jerusalem believers as Christians or label them collectively as the church then there is this false picture created of Jews lining up against Christians or of Judaism coming into violent opposition to Christianity and of course when we think of Christians, Christianity, of the church. What do we think of? 
We think of Gentiles carrying Bibles under their arms, of the sign of the cross present everywhere, of buildings with steeples outside, neat rows of pews inside, of nativity scenes and of Christmas trees. But we need to erase all these thoughts because that's not at all what we are witnessing here in the book of Acts at any point. It's just the Bible translators' misuse of these English labels that creates an inappropriate and historically false mental image that I want to spend a little bit of time to straighten out. I pointed out in prior lessons that the term church, as used in the book of Acts, to collectively label the followers of Yeshua is what's called an anachronism. That is, it is a term or concept even that didn't occur until a later time in history. At least a century, in this case, after the Bible was closed up. So to read the term church as we think of it today, back into the book of Acts, creates a false impression. In a couple more chapters, we'll read in most English Bibles that it was in Antioch that the first use of the term Christians was coined. But in fact, that too gives us a a wrong impression. In the original Greek of the New Testament, the term is Christianos. So it's easy to see how the English word Christians was created from it. But Christianos is taken from the Greek word Christos and as expertly explained, by the way, in the Strong's Concordance, Christos means anointed one. Anointed one. And it is merely translating the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach, Messiah, into Greek. Thus the term Messianic means followers of Messiah. So originally, where Messianics literally meant followers of the Anointed One, so does Christianos literally mean followers of the Anointed One. So while the English word Christians is a reasonable translation, once again, what comes to mind when we think of Christians and we read our Bibles? Christians is a Christian is a centuries-old label. And when we think of Christians, we just subconsciously think of Gentiles, crosses, churches, Christmas trees, choirs, dressed in robes. And if you're Catholic, you think of cathedrals, priests, the Virgin Mary, and the Pope. Right? Can't help it. However, the closest thing that the Jewish believers formulated as a label for themselves was the way. That's what they called themselves. Apparently other Jews referred to them as time at, at, at times as Notzrim and Natsratim, which best translates into English as Nazarenes, meaning people connected to Nazareth, Yeshua's hometown. The point I'm desperate to help all of my Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord to see is that everything that's happening to this point in the book of Acts is taking place exclusively 
within the Jewish community. The synagogue, all that went with it, that's at the center for Yeshua's followers as it is with all the other factions of Judaism. The followers of Yeshua, the way, were unique only in the sense that their particular rabbi was the crucified Yeshua who they also believed was the Messiah. But other Jewish factions didn't agree with this so they rose up against the members of the way. Now lest you think this sort of thing as concerns Jews and Judaism is unique to the New, to the New Testament, I assure you it's not. A large modern day Jewish sect called Chabad has gone through a painful, fairly recent split. The leader of the Chabad Lubavitch faction was a much beloved rabbi named Schneerson. And he passed away from natural causes in 1994. But some among his faction declared him to be the Messiah. And they say that he's not really dead as we commonly think of death. Rather he's in hiding and sometime soon he's going to resurface. This claim has caused a contentious split of Chabad among those who declare Schneerson as the Jewish Messiah versus the majority of them who don't. Using the terms we've recently learned, the split in Chabad is over Halakha, traditions, oral Torah. The oral Torah of the main faction of Chabad says the Messiah has not yet come. The oral teachings of the Lubavitch faction of Chabad says the Messiah has appeared, is gone, but will soon reappear, and in fact, he is named Rabbi Schneerson. So I think God has given modern day believers a very good way to better understand the background and the sense of the issue that was causing the persecutions of the members of the way in Acts chapter 8, if we'll just pay attention. Again, the issue with the death of Yeshua, the death of Stephen, and now the general persecution of believing Jews in Jerusalem was over disagreements concerning halakha, all tradition, or rather oral Torah, traditions, doctrines. That's what it was all about. Now you will notice as we move along that as fervent as the persecution of Jewish believers was by the other Jewish factions, there was never the thought expressed that the believers had somehow abandoned Judaism. Stopped being Jews. Or were forming an entire new religion. The believers didn't even isolate themselves, as did the essence. And the essence were perfectly accepted as Jews, even if their brand of Judaism didn't sit all that well with most of the other brands of Judaism. See, there's so many valuable lessons of application to learn from, from this. But I want to focus on just one, because it's especially relevant to our time. 
It is that among those who call ourselves Christians or Messianics, no matter what faction or denomination, we need to display love towards one another. Because if indeed we all count on Yeshua for redemption, then we all share one spirit. God's spirit. That doesn't mean that we can't strongly disagree on doctrines and and traditions or even call one another on the carpet or leave one denomination or faction because we think they're on the wrong track. Then join another that we think is more correct. No matter which group a believer belongs to, if they hold Yeshua, Jesus Christ, as the true and only Savior and Son of God who is Himself God, then we are brothers and sisters in the faith. We should never behave in such hateful ways towards one another like these factions of Judaism in Jerusalem did in the book of Acts who are in such disagreement with a couple of doctrines of this Messianic Judaism faction that it breaks out into outright persecution and hatred. Now I'm not speaking of tolerance. I'm speaking of love. I'm not speaking of validation of wrong theology in order to be inclusive. Or, or compromising of principles to find a, 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 find a humanly comfortable middle ground. I'm speaking of our own attitude and behavior. I, you know me. I constantly speak out against several erroneous theological principles that are characteristic of the mainstream institutional Christianity of the 21st century especially as regards a bent against Israel and the belief that the Torah is only for Jews. But I sure don't disagree on every point. Nor do I say that those who do not believe precisely as I do aren't Christians because of this disagreement. Rather, my goal is to encourage my brothers and sisters in the faith, Jew and Gentile, to return to the truth of God's Word, to accept it for what it says, to abandon those weak man-made doctrines that aren't in accordance with Scripture, and to live by God's laws and commandments says that, that Christ says we're obligated to do. And those laws aren't going to change in the least, he says, until the heavens and earth pass away. So, in Acts chapter 8, we find that those Jewish followers of Yeshua who were under threat of persecution from their fellow Jews fled Jerusalem for other parts of Judea, also to the Galilee, and somewhat surprisingly, at least to me, to Samaria. I say surprisingly because the people of Samaria were seen universally by Judaism as ungodly, unclean hybrids who were neither Jew nor Gentile. They were a people to be shunned. It was a place to be avoided. And for Jews of that era, 
even though Samaria originally formed the heartland for the promised land. At the moment, Samaria was acknowledged as foreign and its residents were foreigners. This is not because of any declaration by Rome, but because of a declaration by Judaism. This was because the Samaritans practiced what the Jews considered to be a perverted form of a Torah-based religion with their holiest place being Mount Gerizim and their priesthood having no connection to the Levites or to the temple in Jerusalem. Thus we find the disciple Philip, a Hellenistic Jewish believer, going to Samaria and once again surprisingly having success in bringing the gospel to those who would seem the least likely to want to hear anything from a Jew the Samaritans now no doubt news of this success startled the twelve disciples in Jerusalem probably out of skepticism they dispatched Peter and John to go see for themselves And indeed, there were a number of Samaritans that Peter and John judged had accepted Yeshua as Savior. But then, last week, we addressed this sensitive issue of the Holy Spirit and when and how the Holy Spirit indwells a believer. Because in Acts chapter 8 we see that even though the new believers in Samaria had accepted Christ, had even been baptized, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So John and Peter arrived, laid hands on these Samaritans, and the Spirit came upon them. And yet, in other places in the Bible, we'll find that this sequence is faith in Christ with instantaneous indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other passages, the Holy Spirit doesn't come until after water baptism, and yet in other places, the Holy Spirit comes after coming to faith, but before immersion. Intellectual honesty demands of us not to cherry-pick and choose but one of these several different examples of the Holy Spirit indwelling as the only legitimate one. However, most denominations have indeed picked one. And they demand that all the others be seen as heresy. The lesson to take from this is that God is not formula-driven. There is no precise sequence of faith, baptism, indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's authorized by God. None demanded by Him. With other sequences being prohibited or to be judged as not genuine. Rather, it seems to be circumstance-driven and somewhat flexible. And now before we move on to the final verses of chapter 8, let's recall the issue of the Samaritan magician named Shimon, Simon in English, he too accepted the gospel. However, upon 
viewing Peter and John calling down the Holy Spirit of God into believers, he was so impressed that he wanted to have that same ability. So he offered money to the disciples to be taught how. Peter sternly rebuked him, such that some Bible commentators claim Simon was excommunicated. There is nothing in the passage that makes any any suggestion like that. And any thought that Simon wasn't saved just because he didn't instantaneously drop his misguided beliefs for the true beliefs stated in God's Word, you know, that's actually the norm for almost anyone at any time, including up to our present era. We can believe long before we understand more than the most basic principles of salvation. And these deeper and necessary understandings are to be the next step for all believers. But it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and it takes your effort. So the bottom line so far in Acts chapter 8 is that for the first time, the gospel is being taken outside of the Holy Land and even being taken to those who don't practice Judaism and many are coming to faith. And we also see how an ordinary disciple, Philip, not one of the twelve leaders, he is now being focused upon as doing great miracles and bringing many of the least likely to Christ. So let's see what Philip does next. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 25. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1371. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 25. Then, after giving a thorough witness and speaking the word of the Lord, Kepha and Yochanan, Peter and John, started back to Jerusalem, announcing the good news to many villages in Shomron, Samaria. An angel of Adonai said to Philip, Get up and go southward on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert road. So he got up and went, and on his way he caught sight of an Ethiopian, a eunuch, who was a minister in charge of all the treasure of the Kandake, or Queen of Ethiopia. He had been to Jerusalem to worship, and now he was returning home. He was sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Yeshiel. That's Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over to his chariot and stay close to it. And as Philip ran up, he heard the Ethiopian reading from Yeshiel, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? He asked. He said, How can I? unless someone explains it to me. And he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. Now the portion of the Tanakh that he was reading was this. He was like a sheep led to be slaughtered, like a lamb silent before the shear. He does not open his mouth. He was humiliated and denied justice. Who will tell about his descendants since his life has been taken from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, Here's my question to you. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip started to speak, beginning with that passage, and he went on to tell him the good news about Yeshua. And as they were looking down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's some water. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be immersed? 
and he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip immersed him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw no more of him because he continued on his way full of joy. But Philip showed up at Ashdod and continued proclaiming the good news as he went through all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Peter and John teach the Samaritans about God's word to give some firm foundation to their new faith in Messiah Yeshua and then they return to Jerusalem. Now recall that this task of teaching God's word as well as witnessing from Messiah is what the twelve disciples agreed was their true calling and what they ought to spend all their time doing. This points up that regular congregation members like Philip don't have to be Bible scholars or experts in theology to take the good news to those who need to hear it. In fact, I think that the best protocol is for the congregation to evangelize to individuals and then for the leaders to teach and to mature the new believers. Effective evangelizing is almost always one-to-one and it is relational as opposed to informational. But teaching can be and usually is most effective in a one-to-many environment. Why? Because God has equipped every believer everyone to take the good news to non-believers. There's no exceptions to that. But only some have been given the gift and the responsibility of teaching. An angel now instructs Philip to journey back southward to the road that goes between Jerusalem and Gaza. Gaza was at one time one of the five major city-states of the Philistines. However, it was destroyed just after 100 BC and it wasn't rebuilt. So by the time of Christ, Gaza was more of a general location than a specific city or a town. That said, in this era, the water well at the ruins of Gaza was still operating and it was one of the few water sources available before entering into the Sinai Desert. Now, very likely the road to Gaza from Jerusalem was a way to access the Via Maris trade route that more or less followed the Mediterranean coastline. It went all the way south to Egypt. Matter of fact, it existed in the days of Moses. And thus, when we hear of the Ethiopian eunuch, this, rather, this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip would witness to, who was on his way home, he would naturally take the Via Maris to get there. Now, this Ethiopian was a dignitary in the employ of the Kandake of Ethiopia, not Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, as many Bibles have it. Kandake is a title. And it denotes a particularly, uh, rather, a particular dynasty of of royalty over Ethiopia. In fact, it was a dynasty of 
female rulers, of queens. Ethiopia was located south of Egypt. And it is what the Bible calls Cush. And these dark-skinned people were descendants of Ham's son, Cush. Thus the biblical name for the place. It's clear that this eunuch believed in the God of Israel as he'd been in Jerusalem to worship. In his royal chariot, he was reading the scroll of Isaiah when, when Philip spotted him. Now, it may not seem so on the surface, but there is no doubt a divine pattern that's being established here. And it's interesting to me how Philip is the one that's setting it. A eunuch is a castrated male. Now, there were a number of reasons for this castration, but none of them had anything to do with punishment. Rather, it prevented marriage, which kept his loyalty squarely upon the person to whom he was serving. And it limited him to any other kind of a vocation because he was marked for life. Often, removing the male genitalia was for religious purposes, especially when that person was serving a female god or a female ruler. We must remember that at least from a biblical point of view, castration is seen as mutilation, and it's wrong. For one thing, it means that this man will never have offspring. His bloodline will end. In the most ancient Hebrew way of thinking, that means no afterlife is possible, since in some mysterious way one's afterlife is at least partially contained in one's children. But a mutilation of the genitals is also seen as an affront to life itself, since fruitfulness in the form of producing offspring isn't possible. Even more, a castrated man may not become an Israeli national citizen. Because Deuteronomy says this, in Deuteronomy 23.2, a man with crushed or damaged private parts may not enter the assembly of Adonai. Now, this issue arises because a man cannot fulfill his role in the Abrahamic covenant to reproduce. Thus, this man cannot be part of Israel. Now, as concerns the religion of the Hebrews, a castrated male is very limited in where he can worship and in which rituals he can participate. It is likely that if this eunuch was permitted to enter the Temple Mount at all, it would have been in the court of the Gentiles, or more likely, he was prohibited from the Temple Mount altogether, and he could only go to a synagogue. That would explain his interest in Isaiah because that was a synagogue favorite, particularly in this era. Now, thus there is no doubt that this Ethiopian eunuch had not converted to Judaism and become a Jew because he wouldn't have been allowed to. Rather, he was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel. So what we see is that Philip 
has been dealing with those whom Judaism customarily wanted little to do. He was dealing with outcasts and those that normative Judaism looked down upon to one degree or another. First, he dealt with the hated Samaritans, then with a sorcerer, now with a castrated male Gentile. Couldn't get much worse. And what did Philip do? He brought these outcasts into the kingdom of God. Wow, what a hope. What a God pattern is shown to us. There is no one low enough, broken enough, wretched or ruined enough that Yeshua can't heal their spirit and bring them into His kingdom. There is no heritage, there is no race that's excluded. Submit to Christ, God accepts us. As is typical of Luke, he says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, directed Philip to go up and join this eunuch on his chariot. Was this voice Philip heard? Was this a voice that Philip heard, or was this some kind of a um, internal unction? Well, we're not told. But when Philip inquires of the man what it is he's reading, and, he un- and if he understands it, it's clear the eunuch does not. He says he needs somebody to explain it to him. So we're given this excerpt from Isaiah that the eunuch is reading, and it is from Isaiah 53. Now the words of Isaiah 53 that we see quoted in Acts chapter 8 more resemble the Greek Septuagint version rather than the Hebrew Tanakh version. This would make sense since few outside of the Holy Land could read or speak Hebrew. However, Greek was widely known. And of course, this is a messianic prophecy that the eunuch is reading which would be most difficult to grasp if one had not grown up in a Jewish culture. But even then, the synagogues had various interpretations of its meaning. The most accepted being that this suffering servant who was humiliated and denied justice was referring to Israel as a whole, not to an individual. In Acts 32-33 we read it it reads like this he was like a sheep led to be slaughtered like a lamb silent before the shearer he does not open his mouth he was humiliated and denied justice who will tell about his descendants since his life has been taken from the earth the eunuch sees that the plain reading of this passage indicates an individual so he wonders if Isaiah is speaking about himself or is he talking about somebody else good question this gave Philip the opening he needed he of course informed the man that this was speaking of Messiah Yeshua he explained the matter the matter matter rather and the Ethiopian believed now it's the Ethiopian not Philip that seems to raise the issue of immersion now the eunuch obviously had spent sufficient time among Jews and studying the Bible that he was familiar with the mikveh and immersion in, in water. 
And the way the eunuch asks this question, when you look a little closer at the Greek, it's more something like this. Is there anything that should prevent me from being immersed? Should prevent me from being immersed? This is, no doubt, was something he, he'd run into before due to his condition of being castrated and being Gentile. It may well be he had not been allowed to immerse. And he was wondering, does this mean now I can be? I think that's what's going on here. Now, where they found the water, water to immerse, we don't know. But wherever it was, it met the requirement of it being living water, meaning the source of water had to be water that moved, like an ocean or a river or a spring. And since Philip and the, the eunuch entered the water, the water together, the source was of a reasonable size. So upon immersion of this unnamed eunuch, we are told that Philip was suddenly snatched away. His job was completed. Now the Greek word used here for snatched away is harpazo. It's the same word that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4 that speaks of believers being snatched up or caught up into the air to meet Christ in the clouds. So what happened here was a miraculous and unexpected act of God. Philip didn't just quickly leave the scene on his own. Philip suddenly finds himself in Ashdod near the Mediterranean Sea. There he continues to proclaim the good news and he journeys town by town northward about 50 miles to Caesarea. Now this is speaking of Caesarea Maritima which was an impressive and bustling port city that had been greatly improved by King Herod. There, he would have met people from every sort of nationality and religion. Let's move on to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1372. It's a long chapter. We're going to read it all. Meanwhile, Shaul, Paul, still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's Talmudim, his his, uh, disciples, went to the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damasek, that's Damascus, authorizing him to arrest any people he might find, whether men or women, who belong to the way, and to bring them back to Jerusalem. He was on the road and nearing Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? Sir, who are you? he asked. I am Yeshua, and you are persecuting me. But get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you have to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. They helped Shaul get up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So, leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he remained unable to see, and he he neither ate nor drank. There was a Talmud, a disciple, in Damasek, Hananiah by name. And in a vision, the Lord said to him, Hananiah, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to Straight Street, to Yehuda's, to Judah's house, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Shaul. 
for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Hananiah coming in and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. But Hananiah answered, Lord, many have told me about this man, how much harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And here he has a warrant from the head priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, even to their kings and to the sons of Israel as well. For I myself will show him how much he will have to suffer on account of my name. So Hananiah left and he went into the house. And placing his hands on him, he said, Brother Shaul, the Lord, Yeshua, the one who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. In that moment, something like scales fell away from Shaul's eyes. He could see again. He got up, he was immersed. Then he ate some food and regained his strength. Now, Shaul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began proclaiming in the synagogues that Yeshua is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they asked, Hey, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was trying to destroy the people who call on his name? In fact, isn't that why he came here? To arrest them and to bring them back to the head priest. But Shaul was being filled with more and more power. He was creating an uproar among the Jews living in Damascus with his proofs that Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, quite some time later, the non-believing Jews gathered together and made plans to kill him, but their plot became known to Shaul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to do away with him. But under cover of night, his disciples took him and led him down over the city wall, lowering him in a large basket. On reaching Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. However, Barnabas got hold of him and took him to the emissaries. He told them how Shaul had seen the Lord while traveling, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in uh, Damascus, Shaul had spoken out boldly in the name of Yeshua. So he remained with them and went all over Jerusalem continuing to speak out boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they began making attempts to kill him. And when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Then the Messianic community throughout Judah, the Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace and was built up. They lived in the fear of the Lord with the counsel of the Holy Spirit and their numbers kept multiplying. And as Kepha traveled around the countryside, he came down to the believers in Lud. And there he found a man named Aeneas who had lain bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. And Kepha said to him, Aeneas! Yeshua the Messiah is healing you. Get up! Make your bed! Everyone living in Lud and the Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now in Yafo, there was a Talmidah, that is a female disciple, named Tabata, which means gazelle. And she was always doing tzedakah and other good deeds. And it happened that just at that time, she took sick and she died. Well, after washing her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Lud is near Yafo, and the disciples had heard that Kepha was there, so they sent two men to, to him and urged him, Please, come to us without delay. Kepha got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they led him into the upstairs room, and all the widows stood by him, sobbing, showing all the dresses and coats Tabata had made while she was still with them. 
But Kepha put them all outside, and he kneeled down and he prayed. And then turning to the body, he said, Tavata, get up! She opened her eyes. And on seeing Kepha, she sat up. He offered her his hand, helped her to her feet, and then calling the believers and the widows, he presented her to them alive. This became known all over Yafo. Many people put their trust in the Lord. Kepha stayed on in Yafo for some time with a man named Shimon, who was a leather tanner. Well, after our our being briefly introduced to Paul at the end of chapter 7, the story now turns back to him in chapter 9, and he becomes the focus. Now, I said in the introduction some months ago to the book of Acts that it is critical that because almost all church doctrine comes from Paul, So we must learn who Paul is before we're properly equipped to read and decipher his God-inspired letters. And that while his epistles like Galatians and Romans and Corinthians and so on indeed gives us Paul's theology, they don't tell us who he is, why he thinks like he does, and most importantly, what his terms mean to him. Now we're going to find that information only in the book of Acts. And without that and some other information about synagogues and and Judaism in general, it's not possible to correctly interpret much of what Paul says. And what we find is he is a diaspora Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that Judah had centuries earlier absorbed. And so those of Benjamin were called by the same name as those of the tribe of Judah, Jews. But it is also interesting to note how after all this time, at least some Jews continue to also identify with their original tribal family heritage even when they lived outside of the Holy Lands. So while I've spoken on Paul before, let's review a little. I'm going to add some more information. The two names he goes by in the New Testament are Paul and Saul, or more correctly, Shoal. The same name of the first king of Israel who was from Paul's tribe of Benjamin, King Shaul. Now Paul is Latin. Shaul is Hebrew. And since Latin and Greek were the primary languages of the Roman Empire, then it's not surprising that Paul would have an alternative Roman name. What we can be sure of is that his given name was Shaul and not Paul. Because in Acts 13 we read in verse 9, then Shaul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul was an assumed name that he used sometimes because it more fit with his life as a diaspora Jew. Now Paul's hometown of Tarsus was quite large. It was around a half a million population. It had a sizable Jewish community with many synagogues. Paul's first language was Greek. 
but he also spoke Hebrew and Aramaic because Hebrew and Aramaic were similar and it was typical of highly educated Jewish scholars to know both languages since the many Jewish religious documents contained both Aramaic and Hebrew script. Now the church father Jerome who lived in the late 4th and 5th centuries AD claims that Paul's family lived for a time in a place called Gush Chlav in the Galilee. But as a result of war they migrated to Tarsus where Paul was born. Now Paul specifically says he was born into Roman citizenship something that was not usual for diaspora Jews. So his father, Paul's father, was a Roman citizen by some means. Since Paul will use that Roman citizenship to his advantage, let's see what that bought him. First, the benefits of being a Roman citizen covered virtually every aspect of life. Everything from judicial sentences to tax penalties was less for citizens than for non-citizens. Class also mattered. The higher classes of Roman citizens used different courts than the lower classes. And the higher classes were more or less presumed innocent while the lower classes were more or less presumed guilty. It seems pretty clear from what we read of Paul's encounter with the court system, he knew his way around the judiciary. He could demand an audience with a king or with a very high Roman official to personally look at his case. There is little doubt that Paul's family had status. Now as Rabbi Joseph Shulam cleverly observes, one of the most enviable rights that a Roman citizen had that others didn't. Roman citizen of a high enough class was the right to appeal a court decision. Further, a citizen was protected against unjust private or public arrest. He couldn't be punished. He couldn't be tortured, incarcerated, couldn't be executed by local judicial authorities. Thus we see that when Paul was arrested for speaking the gospel, he was eventually taken to the highest authority in Rome where he lets it be known he's a Roman citizen. He demands his rights. Paul was used to privilege in his life. It didn't end when he became an apostle. Paul was a Pharisee because Paul's family was a family of Pharisees. Something rare, by the way, outside of the Holy Land. However, if his family had migrated some years earlier from Galilee to Tarsus, as Jerome claims, then joining the party of the Pharisees while they were in the Galilee and then considering to consider themselves as practicing Pharisees, even while living in the diaspora, that makes more sense. Well, there's more we need to understand about Paul the person, and I want to take all the time needed, so we're going to stop here. And we'll continue on next time.